I suppose that's a, why we have borders, right? So it's to keep people that disagree with our rules out. And that's why I think we should have more borders in this world rather than less, which probably sounds quite strange. I talk a lot about how social media is a bit of a double-edged sword, right? It can either be a very powerful way to reinforce your beliefs about the world or it can be a really powerful way to break those echo chambers. And one of the ways that you can do that is by following people who you respect but maybe disagree with, who have a different view on politics or a different view on other topics that you care about. One of those people in my social network is somebody by the name of Bronwyn Williams. Bronwyn works at Flux Trends with another good friend of mine, Dion Chang, is a futurist, a trends analyst, a political commentator, an economist, and we disagree on just about everything. <laughs> From politics to economics to society in general, we just have very different views on how things could or should be done. And that's great because over time we've developed some really rigorous debate. I've learned an absolute ton from Bronwyn's expertise, her experience, uh, her advice and her wisdom, her challenges. And I'd hope that she would say the same thing about me. And we've been threatening to have a show or a discussion on a show just like this for a very long time where we decide <laughs> from our different perspectives to maybe quite arrogantly have a look at what's not working in the world at the moment and propose potentially some different models for things like democracy and capitalism, maybe the two most predominant operating systems in the world at the moment. And I hope you'll enjoy the discussion. It does get quite deep, sometimes a little contentious. There will almost certainly be the need for a follow-up episode, which I hope you'll want to listen to as well. Please comment if there's anything that you hear on the show that you really enjoyed or that was maybe contentious or that you feel like your network could benefit from hearing from. But without any further ado, please enjoy the battle of words I had with Bronwyn Williams. So in thinking about what we were going to speak about today, and to be fair, there's been a lot of things <laughs> that we could potentially speak about, a, a range of topics that I imagined we could wrestle with in the next 45 minutes, I... I started with this thought that everything's broken, government isn't working, society's a mess. Let's figure out how to fix that in the next, ideally just in the next half an hour or so. But if this is going to be a show that's devoid of assumption and as objective and honest as possible, then maybe we should start with that question. Do you believe everything's messed up? Is everything really broken or does it feel like that to everybody in any generation in that moment in time? How messed up are things really, Bronwyn? <laughs> I think it's the second one. I think that every generation feels like things are messed up and that in general we are wrong because in general things have got better for our future grandchildren than they are for us if you look back on the general course of history. Of course, that doesn't mean that some people end up carrying the short straw. Some sure. generations end up with a bit more trouble than others. But as chaotic as our current period in history really is, the hardships that we're facing are far less hard than the hardships that our great-grandparents faced mm. 100 years ago, for example. We have trivial problems, but we tend to think that they are worse than what they really are because we've had such really cushy lives, if you want to think about it, particularly from a sort of middle-class plus perspective, mm. as are probably most of the people listening to the show. Sure, sure. So, I mean, obviously we're making massive generalizations because, but I think it's fair to say that, as you said, for the vast majority of people that have access to technology, that find themselves in the middle class, life is a hell of a lot better today than it was before. So why is it then that we do feel, and I think if you speak to pretty much anybody, even those that would regard themselves as well-educated and fairly objective uh, in their view of the world, why does it feel like everything's falling apart? Well, I think you've spoken about this before. The whole difference between expectation and reality is what makes people unhappy at the end of the day. And I think that we also have to think about how good things are in both absolute terms and in relative terms. Yes, and that's the key And in absolute yeah. terms, we're not necessarily doing worse off. But in relative terms, compared to those we compare ourselves to, it feels like we're losing ground. And here I'm talking once again about the sort of middle class plus segment of society. And the reason that we feel like we're doing worse off relatively is actually because the bottom tier of humanity is doing that much better. But our gains in the sort of middle class segment haven't necessarily caught up or we're not 
increasing our worth and our value and our wealth, mm. our status at the same rate as the bottom tier are. So when this conversation pops up, a lot of people will cite the late Hans Rosling's Factfulness, which I'm sure is a book that you have opinions on, and I'd love to hear them. But one of the things that he says, whether you agree with his, his worldview or his analysis of our worldview or not, is this really incredible phrase that things can be getting better and still be bad, or things can be bad but getting better. And so while, while I think you and I probably agree that certainly if we compare to the world 50 years ago, a world that found itself in the midst of a global conflict or in the middle of the Great Depression, or if we go further back to the plague, or, yeah, I mean, we just imagine, things can still be bad. Some things can still be bad. So when we think about what is bad, even though the world might be getting better, what are some of the things that are like big red flags for you? Well, I think you're right there. I think I do agree with Hans Rosling pretty much. I think he's absolutely correct that in general things are getting better, but there's lots of problems that still need to be fixed. But as I said, when people feel like they don't have an opportunity to progress in their own life, that's when we get massive social unrest. And unfortunately, this generally seems to affect people who have been set up with higher expectations. Mm. So when the educated classes, when people who have done the work are still not seeing themselves progress up the sort of social ladder, that's when you get huge amounts of resentment and huge amounts of social unrest, social distrust, and all the sort of crazy things that we see in the world right now. It's this huge dissatisfaction when people feel like, like they just can't get ahead. They can't improve their starting position from whatever cards they were dealt. Mm. And it seems, I mean, just at the face of it, and again, being very generalistic in my analysis of it, that a lot of that discomfort or dis-ease is being expressed towards the two default or predominant operating systems for society, right? The one being democracy and the other one being capitalism. Those are the two things that I guess people will write on placards and pretend to protest in the streets about and say, these aren't working. These, you know, they, they do certainly seem to be endemic root dysfunctions in both the capitalist model and the democratic model. And obviously they are highly interdependent. And But I know you, you think a lot about this and you write a lot about this. So the question is, is democracy broken? And if so, how? And then when you've answered that in detail, <laughs> if you could just answer the same thing for capitalism as well, that'd be great. Thank oh, you. Oh, sure. Such a small question. I mean, no problem there. Yeah, yeah. Just just cover that. If you could everything. just cover that in about 90 seconds, then we can get sure, on to the sure. next topic. Thanks. Well, the main problem with democracy is that it doesn't scale particularly well. The bigger mm. democracies get, the less democratic they really are. And this is a concept that not necessarily people think about very much, but it makes sense from a mathematical perspective. So if you have sort of 10 different countries with 10 people in them, and each of those people have a sort of split view on the way the future should be, if they disagree with their peers in a democratic voting system, they can move to another one of those 10 sort of countries or those 10 communities where there are more people that agree with what they say. But if you combine all of those 10 communities into one massive community with, say, 100 people, and you still have a split vote, like you can use contentious issues like the Trump election and Brexit, suddenly you end up with a society where half of everybody is unhappy and they've got pretty much no options as to move or to shift. So that's why as democracies get bigger, you get more and more people that end up actually objectively unhappy with what's going on in the world. That's the first problem with democracy. The second one is how democracy is run currently, particularly in the West, which is run on a party politics basis, mm. which means that we're voting for a party. We're not voting necessarily for a particular pick of policies that we actually agree with. We have yeah. to take a sort of party shopping pack. list of ideas. We have to take yeah. a, the sort of the set menu when it yes, comes to politics. Yes, you know, yeah. we have to take our carrots with our beans. We can't choose one or the other. Gotcha. And we end up with very strange democracies that come out of that. If you sort of look at the, the value mix, if you don't want to look, talk about American politics, how the sort of pro-life crowd is also the pro-gun crowd. I mean, none of these things sort of really make sense. You know, you end up with these mismatched values and you so have to kind of pick one or the other. veganism versus like Vegas buffet, right? Yeah, <laughs> like, exactly. You're there's gonna, no you're space gonna... for the pescatarians. No, no. Uh, <laughs> okay, no, that, that's really, really helpful. I mean, it's a hugely reductionist approach to deciding on what policies we... And because everybody feels like they're losing, this tribalism kind of becomes part of the conversation. I have yeah. to align with those things because that party is 60% representative of my ideals. The 40% I can't really ignore or I've got to pretend I don't care deeply about because otherwise I'm not part of the tribe, right? 
Yeah, exactly. So what it comes down to is when we get to the polls, we end up voting for against people rather than for people. We end up yes. using our vote to prevent the wrong guy getting in because we're more afraid of that. Mm. And we're not actually voting for who we actually believe in or who we want. We're yeah. just sort of picking items off the menu. And I don't know about you, but I don't think that it's that democracy was supposed to be choosing a color T-shirt once every four or five years. That's not really democracy that's that's a sort of mockery of what the ethos of what democracy was supposed to be so of course people are going to be upset about this and it just perpetuates itself in a very vicious cycle because in the sort of party politics system and democracy with the scaling issues too we end up defaulting down to an equilibrium where we do just have two parties in mature mm. democracies. In less mature democracies, like South Africa is one, we tend to have more players on the field, bigger ones, smaller one, but there's more sort of energy. In mm. older democracies, they do tend to stabilize to sort of two polarizing teams. And those polarizing teams have a massive incentive to increase the divide to force people to vote against the other person mm. again. Mm. So you end up with more and more extreme opinions being the faces that end up on the ballots on the day when you actually get to go and vote. And that's not a very healthy situation at all because you end up with literally the worst of the society, the lowest common denominator, the basest ideas, the most polarizing ideas being the only ideas that are represented. And of course, that makes society very, very unstable. It's really pertinent that you'd use the comparison of South Africa being a relatively young democracy or, or young entrant into that model. But I mean, if we're honest with ourselves, we are very much a two-pole or a two-party democracy anyways. And, and the vast majority of what, or certainly from the outside, what it looks like is those parties that are representative of the, in inverted commas, two sides of the discussion are feeling like they have to move further onto those polls to maintain power, which is possibly the story of some of the changing narrative that we've seen over the, whether it's a conversation around kind of socialist ideals or a conversation around independence and freedom or whatever it might be. Do you think that's true here? Or do you still think that there's more kind of, this is a, a genuinely heterogeneous democracy and we have a chance of having more than just two parties dominating the scene? Well, I wouldn't say that it is stable democracy as it is right now but there are more players on the team in fact that's exactly what I was getting at it's like it's not mature yet mm. it hasn't settled so we've got one very very big party and a few very very small parties that make a lot of noise and trade their currency off being as extreme as possible because that's the only way they get to get any sort of media yeah. space or to get their, their faces on the table but our democracy will only mature when that bigger party probably fractures that's probably what's going to happen if we get into that stable equilibrium which democracies tend towards where you've got the left and the right or whatever you want to call it party a and party b with two very distinct worldviews we're not at that point yet but we're in a very unstable equilibrium right now because the one party in charge is so big and bloated and it is made up essentially of a couple of rather different factions that naturally will eventually splinter off i mean we've seen the different ideological sort of bases underneath that party from the unions that don't exactly have the same incentives or the same same alignments with the, the more political side of the party. There's different ideologies there that will eventually not be able to coalesce the way they have currently. So is the problem party politics? Is that the issue? I mean, if we take that away, does democracy work? I think that's one of the issues. The other issue is the fact that we are essentially as citizens in our current democracies that have inverted commas, outsourcing everything towards either an individual or a party. And the mm. party then makes that all the decisions on your behalf. So we're not actually voting for policies. We're not actually voting for what we want. We're voting for a party or a person we believe will represent our best interests, but who as soon as they're elected have a very different set of incentives. They actually yes, are incentivized yes. to stay in power, not incentivized to deliver on what they're electorate once. On a sort of cursory glance, it seems like those two things are the same, but they're really not because sure. a politician is then incentivized to overpromise and underdeliver and to kick cans down the road and in fact to mess things up so that when the sort of in a mature democracy, it seesaws from one party to another. Mm. You leave the other guy with as much mess as possible to clean Jeez. up because that becomes a great incentive to say, oh, look, they messed up. So you end up in the last sort of days of any presidency before a sort of regime change from one party to another with a huge incentive to make things worse <laughs> for the country, which is, which is absolutely awful. 
Mm. So they, very much they are a part probably of the <laughs> North American conversation right now. Yeah, right? Right There's a now. lot of that finger pointing around. This is what we were left mm. with. This is what you were left with. This is, you know, and that's not helpful for anyone. Um, no, I mean, we've got a slightly different issues here in South Africa, and then we have one very big party that has really no one to counterbalance their power. So they can just get away with running around, sort of pillaging the bank vaults and taking as much as they possibly can sure. while, they, while they're there. So making, making hay while the sun shines. And from a purely rational perspective, it makes sense if you part of that party to eat at the trough if everyone else is doing it. And that's what's awful about our current democratic systems. They set up to incentivize bad behavior, not set up to incentivize good behavior or mm. good leadership. Good leadership is penalized in the system. Mm. It is not rewarded. Okay. So I'm going to leave the capitalism thing for now. We're going to get to that. I think it's going to happen organically in this conversation. But we've spoken a bit about it's all fair and well pointing fingers at current models and going that doesn't work and this is broken and if only it were different but it's tougher when you sort of sit down and go well how would how would I change it if I had the power to do so if I had any sort of influence over the current system what would some of the things be that I would institute to change those dynamics to manipulate some of the incentives to encourage more positive and constructive behavior. And that's a really tough conversation to have, partly because I guess the rational mind says, yeah, but it's impossible. You can't actually ever do that. And this is just the way it is. And But I guess thinking about it that way helps place a different emphasis on the components of the ecosystem that are constructive and do have positive incentives built into them. So if we're agreeing that democracy is the best version. If we're going to have government, then that's the best version of electing officials that we have available to us. Have you thought at all about how you would change the system to improve some of those broken dynamics that are in place at the moment? Well, I have a few ideas. I don't know if my ideas are the best ideas, but I do have some. I think it comes back to those two key problems that we spoke about earlier, the scaling issue and then again, the sort of polarization and sense of issue. On the scaling perspective, it makes sense to try and unscale democracy. So in other words, roll back power to smaller community groups. So give more power to local leaders and less power to sort of central authorities and make sure they have more power and more budget to actually deal with those sort of issues in their communities. That's easier said than done. It comes with a lot of problems, but I think that idea okay, let me stop you quickly. is a good How idea. local is, when we say lo- how local are we talking? Are we talking about my street? Are we talking about my neighborhood? Are we talking about Morehill Extension 4, like, like, what do we mean by kind of how local is local? Well, in South Africa, we've already got ward councillors, so roll it back okay. down to there. Give them actually some sort of power to actually be able to make change within their communities. And that requires having access to budgets too, because of course, when you, any, when you start talking about governance, you've got to talk about both the sort of welfare and the warfare aspects. That's both the tax aspects and the sort of implementation of those policies aspects. So we need to sort of decentralize power as much as we can. It's not easy to do at all. But I think in general, if we sort of frame our understanding of what governance should look like at a more local level, it makes a lot more sense because local ward councillors are invested in their local community. They have to go to school there and they should be able to. You know, you have to tie incentives to that. So I think that public officials should be forced to use public services, for example, to sort of get more skin in the game. And, And you don't get skin in the game at a national level. You get it at a much more local level. Yeah. So the more we tie incentives and skin in the game to local communities, the better. In terms of the bigger problem, which is the whole sort of polarization of, of a mature democracy where you've got this incentive. I just want to dial back again because I think sure. you these are really important ideas, actually. And one of my eternal frustrations with our current uh, system is that we all have these ward councillors and depending on who it is and what community we're talking about, they different levels of visibility or expertise. But most people don't know that they have a ward councillor or what they can hold them accountable for. Or, you know, in that system, the system you're proposing, do I have some sense of what percentage of my tax is going to my ward, hypothetically, if we're going to use that as the operating model for local government. Do you think that it would be as transparent as that? Am I, am I, can I literally see a P&L that, that my taxes form part of? 
I think you absolutely should be. I mean, if you're paying for these services, you should be able to understand who, where the money is going to and who's getting it. Perhaps we do need to look at systems, especially now we've got the technology that allows us to do that. So we didn't have it a couple of generations ago mm. where we could split taxes towards the local community and to the national one. I suppose almost like the American system where you've kind of got local taxes and federal taxes that you pay. Sure. The overall amount ends up being the same, but it does mean that some of the cash is tied to your community. And then at the sort of national level, you distribute it to make sure that richer and poorer communities is still getting the base level of service. But, but I think you're suggesting federation, not necessarily at a state or provincial level. It's, like it's, it's more, more granular than that. As granular as we can make it. And this, this, these were impossible solutions even like 10, mm. 20 years ago. But now it's completely possible. We have the systems available to track funding at a granular level. We've got all this technology. We must use it. And I think that governance is very behind the times when it comes to the sort of 4IR technologies or whatever you mm. want to call them. Mm. We, just, we just haven't invested in the future of governance. We're still sort of dealing with with models of governance that worked at the sort of founding of the American state, which was how many hundreds of years ago? We haven't really evolved our understanding of democracy to catch up with the fact that we've got much bigger societies. And we also have better tools to manage these things with. So in your model, would those ward representatives, councillors, whatever we want to call them, would they be politically aligned at all? Or would they be kind of ideologically agnostic? Or would they kind of take on the ideals of the community that they're in you know if it's a if it's a kind of more democratic group or a more mm. kind of conservative group or more liberal rather well, I suppose we can get into that, but I think that the first thing to understand is that we are allowed to vote for independence now, even in South Africa mm -hmm. and across many parts of the world. And I think that's generally a better idea because that person obviously has more, once again, skin in the game. If he's yeah. funding himself, he doesn't have the luxury of a party to fall back on. Sure. It's also not just a player because we know this, like with the ANC, you vote for the party and the president that you think you're getting is not necessarily the president that you get because the party has all the power there. Indeed. So I think the more we get down to independence, the better. And that makes sense at a local level because you're voting for someone in your community that can actually do something. And right now they really can't do much. They've got practically no power. I mean, if you could phone them, if your neighbors are making a bit of a noise and they could write a report to the police station, but that's about all, <laughs> all yeah. that I've been able to see them doing. So I do think, yeah, if we can vote for independence more, that's better. I mean, there must be very few rational arguments against them. If you asked anybody who has any power in our current centralized government system, they'd probably say, but that's what ward councillors are there for, knowing full well that they have, absolute, yeah, have absolutely no real power whatsoever. But if that's the case and we had some sort of federated system or localized system that had the right level of autonomy, had the right funding, had the right transparency – communities are supporting and engaging with those individuals there are potentially community boards that are interacting with those leaders is there still a place for centralized government in that kind of model and if so because i know that the words centralizing government make your hair stand on end if so what do you imagine their role would be well, you've got to have an oversight at some point. You've got to sort of have a smoothing effect that everyone within whatever that border is of your society, whether it's a current nation state or whether it's a future digital state or whatever it is, has some sort of bottom line set of rules that everyone abides by. And that's what. Do you need that though? Well, I don't, but I think a lot of people do. And I think a lot of people want that. What we've definitely seen this year is Imagine that people want rules. Imagine if you could write rules. underlying rules into the software. Well, you can if you have a no, digital no, society. Was, I was making a joke about. <laughs> blockchain okay we will cool. try not to say the b word <laughs> yeah indeed <laughs> okay hypothetically in the model centralized government is still responsible for underlying principles that are what uh, pinned to a constitution to a national identity what governs what well, might be different between south africa's underlying rules and let's say botswana's underlying rules I suppose that's why we have borders, right? So it's to keep people that disagree with our rules out. And that's why I think we should have more borders in this world rather than less, which probably sounds quite strange if people know me and my opinions. But I do think we need more choice. It comes back to that thing about democracy not scaling. And I'm okay with my, my neighboring country as a very different set of rules to what we have. But you're but contradicting yourself, be though, because the problem with that assertion is that we're now talking about 56 million people's ability to agree with each other on what underlying rules are important so no, that's what you, I'm saying we shouldn't have that we should oh, allow okay. different should, countries to have different sets of rules and that's what a border really depending is depending on your localized yeah. okay whether, so, it's so, a, whether it's a physical border or in the future a virtual border but whatever it is that's no, what sure, defines no. a community or a country or a nation a nation's probably the right word so there. i could hypothetically smoke rules. in empire road but not in jan smuts road 
Yeah, uh, maybe on a national scale. We don't want to granulate the laws right down to your suburbs because that could get a bit silly. I mean, I know we've got bylaws right now, but I think we've got too many of the silly laws and not enough of the, the basic ones set out. And the basic ones is basically like who's in and who's out, who is a citizen, who's not a citizen. And what are you allowed to do? And what are you not allowed to do? What is a, what is a crime? You know, what are, and what are the punishments? So law and order makes a lot of sense if it is centralized. Those basic, you know, what what makes you part of this community or not, and that's the sort of monopoly on power that comes down to this general sort of philosophy of what a state is. Because otherwise, we can descend into anarchy very very quickly. And of course, I'd like to maximize for freedom as much as possible in my own personal perspective, but I completely understand other people would prefer to maximize for things like security. Yeah. And I that think that's, that's a very question. big trade-off. Yeah. And that's why I do recognize that we live in a, in a real world with real people rather than a sort of a utopia where we can have everything that we want. And that's why it makes sense that as long as the rules are common to all, that's a good sort of basis to have a general state to take care of those issues. And perhaps depending on the, the values of your nation, you probably need some sort of welfare state to go with it too, because that, that's what people want right now. People want security and security from both a physical perspective and also from a financial perspective. I don't, so don't want to debate the merits of that, yeah, but just to say that's something that yeah. some, some countries would want, some nations would want that. And that, that should be baked into the national set of rules. That's centralized governance. And that those are the sort of questions that you'd have to debate at that level. Whereas how things actually get done and how the potholes actually get filled really do need to be decentralized down the line. Because those are the things that make our lives actually work at the end of the day. Mm. And those mm. are the sort of things that cannot be, you know, bundled up with bureaucracy that goes through many, many layers and ends up, you know, with that, what's that NHS disaster where they put the Excel data in wrong on the COVID oh, deaths. <laughs> Because okay. <laughs> they couldn't input the data, so all the stats were wrong, which oh, is dear. quite hilarious. Okay. Yes. We don't want oh, that. Oh, <laughs> yes, I did see that. Okay, No, we don't. We don't want that at all. Here's another hypothetical situation. The big coup happens. Our beloved government is overthrown, and of course, the people who overthrow the government have been listening to this podcast and heard Bronwyn's wisdom and said, Bronwyn, we want to employ you on a subcontracted basis to write the rules of this new centralized government. We want you to just give us guidelines, parameters, as to what the very basics should be. What are the fundamental building blocks? In this case, comfortable saying for South Africa, what what would you suggest would be the non-negotiable basic rule sets of a centralized government here? Well, I think the key one there is the the good old one, like just don't hurt people, right? I mean, that's like let's try get that one right first, South Africa, okay. before we talk about anything else. I think that's probably a bigger conversation than what, what I can answer. What do you mean by answer. don't hurt people, though? Like, don't touch people when they don't want to be touched. Don't take people's stuff. You know, the real basics. Yeah. You know, don't steal, don't kill, don't hurt. I don't mean, offend someone. <laughs> no, absolutely not. I'm a freedom of no, I'm no, a free I'm speech asking, maximalist. Because which because is an depending on opinion. who you speak to, that hurts. Or they might say that that hurts. So I'm ju- I'm just saying that depending on which citizen you're talking to, the words you speak could be hurtful to me. And so I might, when you say don't hurt anyone, I might I might believe that that includes the nasty things you said. No, no, I think I go back further in time to the sort of more basic philosophy on that, which is like you can't actually force a physical body to do something it doesn't want to be done to so it. So sticks and stones, but not words. Yeah, can I ever think harm we you. cannot. I think that's that any sort of infringing on freedom of speech ends up having more unintended consequences than intended consequences and can sure. be used obviously to turn into censorship at the drop of a hat. I mean, gotcha. it can be used for bad things at a political level. And I think that that brings me to probably my more important point. So decentralizing power is the one thing, but the other one is we have to have more active citizenship and we have to put incentives in place to get citizens to participate in maintaining their nation state that mm. they believe in and the rules that they've decided to submit to rather than incentivizing politicians to sort of break those rules as we kind sure. of doing at the moment. I think there are ways that we can do that, but it has to have it has to it has to be incentive based. So we have to get something for it. And the first thing that we get from participating in a democracy is we get more things to go our way. You know, so the more and more we work we put in, the more we get out of it. So I think that we really do need to look at ways to find to get individual citizens to take more responsibility for their actions. And that comes back straight away to the freedom of speech issue. If someone says something offensive, absolutely there should be consequences by their community. That should be a citizen-led revolt against the person, which is why I have mixed feelings about things like cancel culture. I think that that's a, that's a sort of 
free society prerogative if you want to not do business with or not associate with someone who is offensive to the group that's fine but that individual should have the freedom to rebel against that censorship of the of the community i think there's a very big difference between mandated centrally controlled rules over freedom of speech and freedom of movement and rules that are enforced by the community so if you take something like the the classic case of the the bakery that refused to make a cake for a, for a couple whose you know sexual orientation they did not agree with mm. There's two ways to deal with that. The one is to bring it out into the light and have the community shun that bakery and say, mm-hmm. we will not trade with you, which will effectively close that business down eventually. Theoretically. Or in, in theory, yeah. if, the, if the general consensus in the community is that's a bad thing, that business will no longer exist because yeah. no one will support it. Depending on where the consensus has been expressed. Yeah. yeah. So if you, you're under an obligation to support that, it's quite different to have a legal system that then punishes that from a top-down perspective. Mm. So I think that the state should not be really dealing with issues of morality or issues of contentious opinion. It should only really be enforcing laws that are absolute. Like it's nobody, nobody wants to be punched in the face. So you've got to say, you can't do that, for example. Words are slippery things because they mean something to one person and something else to someone else. And when you try and force that from a top-down perspective, you probably end up creating very bad unintended consequences, particularly in the fact that you don't get to see who the bad guys are anymore because mm. if certain words are illegal, people still think them and they still behave in those ways, but you can't see who is saying that until it's too late. So I think that we end up, safetyism ends up sort of destroying a lot of what we're trying to achieve mm. by these sorts well, of shout rules. out to Russell Lamberti there. Um, <laughs> Tracy Follows said it first. Little shout out to Tracy <laughs> Follows and Russell Lamberti. So rule number one, do no harm. That's a good rule. At all costs. <laughs> it's a good rule, rule number but it's too two. Broad. <laughs> <laughs> rule number two. Obey the obey the laws. Like everyone's got to obey the and laws we've only got correctly. One law. But I think that that is always the first rule. That is the first law of any sort of game. Is we agree to follow the rules. If you have to tell people to follow the rules, maybe the rules are wrong, right? Yeah, but that's sort of getting the buy-in to like being part of that nation state. Like before you get onto a field to play a match, you gotta you gotta agree these are the rules we're playing by. So I think that's that's the first rule is to sure. say we actually agree to play by whatever the rules we have are. But I don't even think that's necessarily the right conversation to be having about which what the rules should be. I think the more interesting conversation is how those rules are determined. Yes, but I guess that that's where we started, right? Yeah. So what I'm getting at is there anything that centralized government should have as a foundational responsibility and accountability point. The first thing you're saying is policing harm against citizens. Yeah, it's, it, so that's the, the first state's thing I'm role is to keep their citizens safe. From harm, from safe physical from harm. harm. Yeah, from physical harm. So that yeah. is from sort of marauding hordes that want to come over the border, to use a sort of terrible example, and from each other. So safe from external threats and safe from each other. So it's got to keep the peace internally and protect against enemies on the outside. That's the, that's the and basic domestic. core responsibility of a state. So it's, it's the state's role literally to draw boundaries, to say we do this and we don't do this. This is who is part of the state and that's who's not. And okay. that's, that's, a, that's an uncomfortable conversation because we're trying to sort of break down borders and increase human migration flows across the world. But we've got to understand that the whole reason we have states is because we have borders, whether those borders are sort of virtual borders as to who pays taxes and who doesn't, or whether they're physical borders as to who lives where on which side of the line. That's what makes a state. It's a set, it's a boundaries, a set of boundaries. Is the problem states? Is the problem nation states? I think the problem, that's the problem for some people. I don't think that's the, the core problem. I think the core problem is, is human nature and how, how we like to have sort of power accrue because power like capital likes to accrue into sort of the, the winner takes all at the end of the day. And the, the purpose of democracy is to mitigate that power accumulating to the state. Functioning democracy should have a great dynamic tension between the people and the rulers. And, you know, that, that requires having citizens with agency who are are aware of the powers of their state or aware of the laws, have basic civics sort of education and also have the recourse to be able to limit those powers. That's the general democratic understanding is you want to have that dynamic tension between the, the governed and the governors. I'm going to tangentize a little bit here because I think 
this is something we haven't discussed. This is something that, because we, we tend to get onto granular details and arguments based on the status quo rather than your strength, which is imagining a future, imagining how behaviors that are happening at the moment, this is your day job, right? So you analyze trends, you look at human behavior, and you try and, I guess, uh, extrapolate those into possible outcomes in the future. And based on what we're talking about right now, because I want to I speak a little bit about this nation-state thing, because it is it's a little bit ridiculous. It is completely arbitrary, right? That a person that is born south of this river is completely different to the person that's born north of that river in language and cultural heritage and everything else. And the randomness that goes into where those people ended up getting born is, is I mean, that the imagined myth of nation states is one of the most powerful forces in the world. It's hard to imagine anymore. Maybe money and organized religion are the only other ones that that compete 200 years from now bronwyn will we look back at the idea of nation states as being defunct is there a possibility that the future abandons the nation state there is absolutely a possibility that the future abandons the nation state but i like to compare the nation state idea to that of democracy it's a sort of best worst idea that we have because the alternative really is empire, which is what most of humanity lived no, under for, for a very no, long time. it's not the only alternative. You're saying the only alternative is bigger. There not, is an alternative, alternative that's smaller. Sure, they are. They're, yeah. they're city-states that could pop up, but I don't think that they, they're sustainable either. From like a sort of your general power dynamics as power wants to grow. And we have to sort of get to, once again, a sort of equilibrium state, like we sort of get to the sort of two-party equilibrium in democracy. When it comes to nation-states, we also tend to get see states getting as big as possible before they start making too many of the people contained within those borders unhappy. As I said, like the scaling issues of the nation state are very similar to the scaling issues of democracy. And the two mm. really do go hand in hand. But a nation state is a safeguard against the sort of more totalitarian view of the future. And it's also a way for sort of smaller city states, which are not a stable equilibrium. Again, just like we talk about the sort of the multi-party states in South Africa, it's not a stable equilibrium because even if you have many small city states, if a few of those start to combine, suddenly you've got a massive power imbalance again where you've got a big a big monopoly against someone else a big monopoly the, of power the mini big, empire yeah. yeah the empire on the side and this is this is the history of human geopolitics mm. We sort of, the nation state extends until it becomes an empire. It eats up all the little smaller communities around it until eventually that sort of breaks apart under its strength because there's limits to scale there too. Very much the same thing that happens with politics and democracy. So when it gets too big and bloated and overweight, there is revolution. You know, and that's when sort of inequality creeps into an untenable level. And when Mm. that middle class we opened up speaking about today is no longer feels that they are ever going to be able to achieve their expectations, you end up with, with huge amounts of unrest but it's the same thing with the nation state idea. And we've sort of seen over the last hundred or so years, we've had a, a rather stable period in terms of geopolitics. So sort of after the world wars, mm. the borders have kind of stayed the same, but that's abnormal, not normal for mm. human history mm. at all. And in fact, our world is more fragmented now officially than it has been for a large portion of human history. Aftershock and maybe what we're witnessing at the moment is a, is a kickback against that stability. Yeah, exactly. And I think that the reason why nation states have been proposed as a more stable solution by people that study geopolitics for a living is because of that danger of having one power that is too strong compared to everyone else. And that's always a risk if you have a fragmented world that a a certain group band together and becomes more powerful than all the rest. I mean, this is the history of Europe. So it's basically Germany getting too big and then Mm. causing Mm. trouble and then getting broken up, getting too big again. This is like this has gone on for centuries. And that's that's sort of why it, it speaks to human nature. We need borders. We need rules because we're not very good at getting along with each other. And also because human psychology is so flawed in that, you know, one out of every hundred out of us is a literal psychopath. So, you know, you don't want a case where no it's too room, easy. Definitely not. Or <laughs> <laughs> it's too easy for that, that one guy to have his hand on the proverbial red button. So the whole thinking behind nation states is to try and break up that power, but in a way that is as scaled as possible. So you're getting as much of the economies of scale and as much sort of resilience to on the other side. But that's the theory behind it. 
So mm. I think it's not guaranteed, but I'm not sure the alternative is going to be better for us. Just like until we come up with a better idea than democracy, that's kind of the system we need to try and fix because we've tried many other things and they haven't been that grateful. Most of the people that lived under them. Indeed. And I mean, this is the quintessential kind of example and forgive me for the cliche, but how does that make you think about places like Singapore as an example? Do you think it's a working model or are you quite critical of that? No, no, absolutely. I think Singapore is a great idea. That's city state. But I think that it has a, a monster leaning over its shoulder in that it's not entirely free of the shadow of the, the sort of the, the rising star in the east at all. Mm. So and that really speaks to what I was talking about earlier, mm. that nation states are, tr- are supposed to be set up, that they have relatively equal power. that They can maintain a sort of dynamic equilibrium that not there's not small ones that are being preyed on by much bigger states that are constantly threatening them. And that's that's the challenge with city states. But I think that it's there's interesting models developing there, like Hong Kong's actually thinking about becoming a sort of diaspora city-state, mm. where the city-state is actually made up of the individual rather than by a geography per se. Mm. So it's not a physical city, but rather a virtual city with like-minded people scattered across the world. It's almost like the opposite of what Israel was. <laughs> so Israel wow. was a physical state where like-minded people came together. Yes. The, the sort of vision for to save Hong Kong from its sort of deadline that's ticking for the year 2050 when it's going to be handed back to its less than benevolent parent yeah. is to sort of build this, this virtual city where citizens are still part of a community from a commerce perspective, from a tax and welfare perspective, but are not bordered by geography. And those are very, very interesting concepts. But sure, they're that's still borders. Yeah. They're still borders. They're just virtual borders. They're not tied to geography. Yeah. So sort of 4D geopolitics, moving from chess to go, as I like yeah. to say. <laughs> very nerdy. Very nerdy. Um, also, only really possible if you had the technology to enable it. And that that's the in, that's when a discussion about technology becomes really interesting, right? Uh, as, as a true disruptor, because that is a, an age-old model uh, firmly on its head, taking the best characteristics of what we have been critical of to this point and saying, how do we find different ways to create that sort of connection and identity and unity without the downsides of, <laughs> of the, the geographical location? Okay, so now that we've fixed democracy and thanks, you and I have had (laughs) (laughs) you and I have had lengthy discussions around the pros and cons of capitalism. And if we're honest with ourselves, both of us, the model that we call capitalism right now, or at least what we what we identify as capital, isn't all that capitalistic either. So there's not you know, there's a couple of fundamental characteristics of the capitalist model or ideal that aren't necessarily characteristic of all of the, the the markets that we call capital or capitalistic. What are those ideals and why have we forgotten them? Well, I think the first thing to realize is that capitalism as a word has kind of been bastardized these mm. days. And I think it's interesting if you try to separate the terms free market and capitalism because yeah. they sort of complement, but they're not the same thing. Capitalism mm. is about capital accumulation, as I have pointed out. You know, communist governments can be quite good at capital accumulation too for sure. the certain few. So capitalism is not something that is only attached to the sort of free market ideology. And as you've mentioned, most there's, there's really no free market nation states in the world today. They're all varying degrees of socialism, which means there's varying degrees of national ownership of assets. And that for me is not necessarily what the nation state should be doing. The nation state should be guaranteeing law and order, like we spoke about earlier, providing safety. But it's that sort of word safety is sort of morphed into safety from a financial perspective too, Mm. which requires ceding a lot more power to the state. It requires a sort of a, a confiscatory tax regime. It requires state involvement in economics, which is where you get dead weight loss, which is that sort of nightmare of all economists, because we've got the bureaucracy that is sucking up value that should be allowed to accrue to the citizens mm. or to the providers of those services. And unfortunately, that's the sort of trade-off we make as nation states to say, if we want more free stuff, we've got to give up some freedoms. And also means we've got to give up our sort of free market ideals, if that's what we are into. Because the, the promise of the free market is is a complete meritocracy, which is not a very popular ideal these days. But I think it's not popular because we have conflated those ideas of capitalism with that of free market. And most of the things that we call capitalists today are actually not free market at all. So if you're talking about the worst excesses of capitalism are not at all free They are bank bailouts of public money being deployed to private institutions. That's not a free market ideal. That's a very manipulative market. Mm. Pretty much all monopolies you look at 
rely or are based on some unfreedom in the system. So yeah, whether so, it's property rights or physical property, whether it's copyright laws that prevent people from you know engaging in commerce, whether it's patents and patent trolls, asymmetry yeah. of information, those are all unfreedoms. So I think that the way to sort of bridge a divide between those, those huge polarization between the sort of capitalist and socialist view of the world is to actually say, wait a minute, guys, you kind of got it's all it's all the same thing you arguing arguing about, mm, right? Mm. And the, the the real debate is to say what freedoms have we inadvertently let go that are now creating the very problems they were designed to solve. And what most people want is a more equitable world. That's what most people really want when they say they want more socialist policies and they are socialist or they are left-wing when they use those terms to describe themselves. They're really saying they want a more equitable world. Mm. But unfortunately, party politics has attached certain ideas to certain parties and made us not be able to see eye to eye, to see that we're actually trying to solve the same problem across both aisles of the political divide, or at least most people. Let's just give people the benefit of the doubt there and say the good guys, the intelligent guys, and both sides of the divide are trying to solve those problems. But we get so hung up on the solution, that's when we end up creating huge divisions. I think it's fair to say that even the sensible people on both sides of the divide have been forced into corners they don't necessarily want to be in because of the dynamics we spoke about earlier. You got me thinking about something, hmm. right? A lot of the conversation around political polls is freedom versus equity. What I'm hearing you say, correct me if I'm wrong here, is Freedom and equity are the same thing. That would be my perspective, yes. I'm on a minority there, but yes. <laughs> okay. More freedom does give us more equity because it removes a lot of those roadblocks that allow people to accrue wealth into certain hands. And this is where I sort of stray from the general free market sort of... <laughs> ideology and that if we really want free markets we have to really look at the things that are holding us back from having a free market and that is rights that are being held, upheld by the state so what we have conflated as citizens of democracies is positive and negative rights and the difference between rights and entitlements and we've kind of conflated those two mm. ideas to our detriment and the sort of things that we believe are our entitlements are the right to the state protecting our property I don't think the state has an innate right to protect our property. And that includes theft. It includes your land that you live on. I think that those are services. And those are sort of add-ons to the basic of, state yeah, that should some, be paid for sure, on a user-pays basis. There's some overlapping or grain of your assertion that the state should maintain law and order. And again, it depends on what your definitions of those things are and what's important to you in terms of security. But mm. I do have to say that I've got to watch the time on this one because, number one, I have to do another recording. But number two, Bronwyn, I really want to do part two of this. I want to do part two where we go, okay, these are the things that we covered. And because we did say that this was going to end up being a three-part conversation, at least. I want to talk a lot more about this conversation of freedom and equity. I want to talk a lot more about the conversation around entitlement versus rights. Because these are all words that we, you and I, but, but the networks that we operate in are throwing around willy-nilly, for lack of a better phrase, like we all have the same understanding of them. And um, they're such heavy words. They have weight and substance, and they shouldn't be thrown around with the same level of, I guess, you know, consideration that we currently allow them. So I want to invite you back. I want to ask that, first of all, I want to ask that anybody that's listening to this, that has learned something or that has had a point brought up that they would love to disagree and debate with, because I guarantee you, if we've had a good conversation, then there are going to be those points. Please do reach out and connect with us, because I'd love to bring those to Bronwyn or to me in the next conversation and, and debate those in more detail. But Bronwyn, when it comes to people's attitudes towards capitalism, the operating definition of that word, obviously, as it is right now. How do you hope people would change their minds about the role of capitalism in a free society? I think that the way that we can get people to change their minds and be more positive about it is to see that the sort of the free market capitalism, I'm going to keep saying that because it is quite, di quite a different sure. concept, is really the only way that people are able to 
bridge that divide between the expectation and their reality. It's the only way to get ahead from where you are currently because life is unfair. We all get dealt a random hand in the sort of lottery of life. As you said, depending on what side of the river you're born on sets up your life on an entirely different course. It is entirely unfair, but I think that we all do have the innate rights to be able to improve our initial position as much as we can based on what we were given in that completely unfair lottery. And that whole sort of free market capitalist ideal is really the only way that we are able to move forward and do that. We have to allow some sort of slack for individuals to make their own choices. And I think for me, the reason that free market capitalism is appealing is because it requires skin in the game. It requires everyone to put effort in, which is actually not that different to the communist ideal, right? But it does it on a a way that is self-governing. I think that the only way to work with human nature is to work with the incentives that actually move us Mm. as people. And I think that the free market game is better incentivized to get people to work together, ironically, than the less free game. Because those are really our only two choices. I mean, like we use these words, capitalism, socialism, communism, but they all just refer to different degrees of freedom. And I think the more, yeah, different degrees of personal freedom. And I think that people get confused when they start thinking of things like universal basic income and welfare and socialism as giving them freedom. But a free lunch that comes with strings attached is not as free as it really is. It doesn't maximize your ability to move yourself along based on whatever that initial opening hand of I suppose cards the counter argument would be freedom in a system that's geared to work against you isn't freedom either. Yes, exactly. So let's talk about changing that system to make yeah. sure that it is a fair system. I think that's a better sure. question because what are we actually getting to? And we get stuck on the solution, on the on the ideology and not the underlying issue. The underlying issue is we want a more fair, a more free, a more equitable world. And if we're arguing continually about the sort of capitalist, socialist, communist view of the world, we're not actually arguing about what we really want. And there are ways for us all to win if we are able to understand that by giving up freedoms, we're not actually getting more. We think we're getting security, but what we're actually getting is just more strings attached and less opportunity for us to actually raise the bar in absolute terms going forward. I think there's different conversations to be had and without being inflammatory or sort of pointing names at people, I think we've got to get down to what it is that we really want. What do we want out of this life? We want we want progress. We want to be able to move forward. We want to be able to get closer to our expectations. We want more people to have a participation in that that progress goal you know we want more equity we want we want a better life for more people so we want better things in both absolute and relative terms and i don't believe we can do that by putting bricks on people's heads you know to sort of slowing mm. down some people to make it fair i think fairness is perhaps also one of those those big weighty words that we're going to have to talk about because what is fair and what is just really comes down to these conversations I do you roll your eyes i do, I do not <laughs> so Free market capitalism is the only route to social mobility. Bronwyn Williams. I did not say that. <laughs> that. That's the quote that I'm going to put on the little sticker that goes on Twitter. Put, Bronwyn, put your own name on that one. <laughs> sure. For, for people that want to hear more of what you're saying, read more of what you're writing, find out more about uh, the projects that you're involved with, where do they go? What's the best way to reach you? How do they stalk you? Those sorts of things. Stalk me on Twitter. I say too much there all the time. Indeed. So come fight with me there. I'll How do people fight. find you on Twitter? At Bronwyn Williams. Okay, Very cool. easy. And then, of course, Flex Trains for the business sides of things. Uh, some of the masterclasses that you guys have been running. Correct. Some really cool programs that people can get involved in. The newsletter as well. Great. Yeah, flextrains.com. That's the, that's the business. Happy, happy to do your marketing for you. Cool. Thanks, Mike. <laughs> Thanks for joining me, Bronwyn. Until part two. Until part two. You've been listening to the One-Eyed Man podcast. I'm Mike Stopforth, an entrepreneur, writer, and public speaker, deeply curious about discovering better ways to lead and better ways to live in an increasingly complex world. I find the best source of these ideas is the experience and wisdom of interesting people who are taking unconventional approaches to solving the world's most compelling problems. If you'd like to hear from someone I haven't yet spoken to, visit MikeStopforth.com Click on the podcast link and send through your suggestions. A big thanks to the Solid Gold Podcast Studios in Johannesburg, South Africa for making this production possible. And remember, in the land of the blind, a one-eyed man slash person is king. You've been listening to another episode from the Solid Gold Podcast Studios.